0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at sovereignhope.church. That's sovereignhope.church. Lord Jesus, we are always a people in need and you are always a God who speaks. You're a God who speaks uh, not as we do, not with words inflated with um, some empty sense of self-importance or a desire to hear oneself talk, but you speak because you are a God who is loving and who has set forth to not only communicate to a lost people what went wrong, uh, but to take on flesh in Jesus Christ and to win us back, not merely by your word, but through your word in the flesh. So as we look at portraits of righteousness today, Jesus, may you be exalted as the source center of all of our confidence before God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, In 1992, a group of friends wrote a song depicting the way in which our relationships uh, have the potential um, to expose us, to make us feel vulnerable. And the chorus goes like this. It says, If you want to destroy my sweater, hold this thread as I walk away. Watch me unravel, and soon I'll be naked. Lying on the floor, I've come undone. So there are two groups of people in here one that was nodding with the tune, and the other that are like, What is this song? (laughs) Um, And someday we will meet. Uh, But I'm no music history scholar. But I imagine when Weezer wrote that song in the early 90s that they had been reading uh, Luke chapter 16 and 18. I'm pretty sure that's what happened here because as we've been following Jesus in the book of Luke, he's going to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples and also much critics and many crowds. And during this section, more than anything else in the book of Luke, Jesus is metaphorically unraveling the clothes that people are wearing to expose their hearts and their thoughts on Jesus. That to have a relationship with Jesus is to be exposed by Jesus. He's been showing us faithfully and slowly that what seems most natural, most safe, and what makes the most sense to our own mind is often out of place with the kingdom of the gospel. Just as the author of Hebrews chapter 4 says, concerning the word of God, Jesus is laying us exposed and bare before him. This is bad news for those of us who think ignorance is bliss, but it is good news for any of us who want more than fraying sweaters and false hopes when it comes not only to how we react and respond to God, but how we live in this world. And what's happening in these chapters is Jesus is really unpacking a significant statement that he made in chapter 17, where he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, if you've been around church you, uh, or know just culturally of Jesus, he often speaks in these platitudes that we kind of just chalk up and be like, well, yes, that's a Jesus-y thing to say, but he really means it. And what's been happening in these chapters is he's showing us how he means that. Last week in the parable of the persistent widow, he said, lose your self-worth, be the persistent widow, keep going, and you'll find what you hope for from the God who is better than an unjust judge. And today, this continues because there's an upside downness to the gospel, which only makes sense when we understand the realities of the gospel. That is, to know Jesus and what he's done to save us from our sin, it undoes us, but it does so to remake us. It does so to reframe our reality by reframing and restoring our relationship to God. And in today's text that was just read for us, we saw these dueling realities. We saw a man who seemed to have it all right, but he got it all wrong. We also saw a man who had everything wrong, but he got it right. And we see the words of Jesus, who has come to warn those who feel right, but who are actually in the wrong, and to comfort those who feel wrong, but who by mercy can be made right in Jesus Christ. And a primary thing we've seen in the book of Luke is that what you think saves you, shapes you. And his parable continues to drive that point home today. And our main point is simply this. The gospel is for those who need it, and you need it. The good news of Jesus, doing everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, is for those who need it, and you need it. And in this parable, we see three points. First, we're going to see the Pharisee and blind self-sufficiency. Then we're going to see the tax collector, an obvious sinfulness. And then lastly, as Jesus gives us his verdict of these two men, we see merciful salvation. So that's kind of our roadmap forward today. But as we begin, I want to frame our our thoughts here, kind of frame our world that Jesus is speaking into. Because Luke actually tells us, if you notice in verse 9, why Jesus gives us this parable. In other words, he's telling us how we can apply this to our lives and to what hearts this parable matters. He says this in verse 9. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Our world talks often the problem of not being able to trust ourselves or a lack of self-confidence. Be confident in your ability to study hard and pass an exam. Be confident in your ability to go to the gym after training and beat your PR. Be confident to take that recipe from Instagram and execute it to the fullest, but be not confident in your own righteousness. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And what's interesting to see is that righteousness is the target. Righteousness here in verse 9 is what people wanted. It's what they labored for. It's what they thought they had. But at the end of the day, it's what one man misunderstood and what another man received. All of us have probably heard that word righteousness before, but do you really know what it means? And if you know what it means or think you know what it means, is it something that you would describe in relationship as what you're seeking out, as what you're hoping to have, as what is desirous or satisfying to you? You see, righteousness hits our ears, sometimes like the word sodium chloride does. sounds academic, potentially dangerous, complicated. If I told any of you, you just accidentally ate food laced with sodium chloride, you'd pause until you remembered that sodium chloride is just what? It's just salt. Salt's good. It tastes good. It's helpful. It's wonderful. The world loves salt, and the world loves righteousness. While righteousness is commonly used in religious circles, and we can think of it in this complex, uh, academic-sounding thing, the saltiness of righteousness is that it simply communicates a sense of right alignment, consistent standards, ordered behaviors. It is fairness. It is justice. It is peace. It is provision. The Old Testament speaks of righteousness in connection to another word, the word shalom, total comprehensive wholeness. Righteousness at its base is rightness. Everyone wants rightness. We want things to be right in our own lives. We may interpret it differently, but just as Blaise Pascal says that happiness is at the heart of all of our decisions, the Bible goes one step further and says righteousness is at the heart of all our decisions. The person seeking an abortion wants rightness. She wants a world where risk and the unknown threats to her dreams and plans have been made safe and realigned. The person seeking gender-affirming surgery wants righteousness. They want the structure of their flesh to be drawn in accord with the thoughts of their mind. The college student going to frat parties wants righteousness He wants his behavior to be recognized so that he can be declared socially right by those who seem to have it all. The spiritualist wants righteousness. They want the world to be connected in peace, feeling a sort of intimacy with one another across the globe. The hope for the Christian is righteousness, that we would have peace with God. We all want righteousness. Why is that? Well, it's because we are made in the image of God himself. We are made out of an overflow of God who is righteousness. He is perfect in every way. He is all the things we want in our rightness. He is loving. He is just. He is pure. He is generous. And this is precisely because as a Christian, uh, we worship a God who is Trinity, who is loving, merciful, generous, and in community in and of himself, three persons in one God. And because we are made in his image, we all have this natural north star of righteousness. We are drawn to it like magnets. We seek for it. We desire it, but there's a problem. And here's why everyone looks for righteousness under every rock and stone. The problem is in Genesis 3, when the first humans that God made, Adam and Eve, rebelled. They had rightness with God, but they became unrighteous when they rejected God as the true source of peace, as the true source of love, as the true source of authority. And they were deceived and took matters into their own hands. Now that rightness has been shattered and we are left treasure hunting with a desire for righteousness, but we seek it in a world full of dollar store goods, looking and seeking for that which is in itself God. We're seeking him and his beauty, and that's what leads us to idolatry, and that's what leads us to things in this world that look for righteousness, and Jesus introduces this in a really profound way in verse nine, and I don't know if you noticed it, but he said that those who sought righteousness in themselves treated others with contempt, which means this, this is pretty staggering. There is nothing more shaping on culture, sacred or secular, than where you think you find your rightness. There is nothing more powerful that shapes how we interact with one another, sacred or secular, than where you believe you find your peace. Which means this, if you're in here today, you had better make sure you know where your righteousness is from and what your trust is in it. It's in the context of desiring and trusting in self-righteousness that Jesus gives a parable about two men, two men who are going before God. We read this in verse 10, where Jesus says this, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The years of reading the Bible uh, have kind of uh, numbed our minds to the realities of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are always the bad guys, but this was not true in this time. People didn't know the Pharisees were the bad guys. And so when we read this, we already read Pharisee, and we're like, yeah, they are the worst. But this would have been throwing rocks at the studs of the day the people who everyone wanted to be, the hope, the most generous, the most kind, the most righteous superstars in life. That's who the Pharisee was. He was the good guy. The tax collector, on the other hand, was the bad guy. He sympathized with Rome. He was most likely a thief. He was seen as the outsider in this text. And the context are these two men one who was the representation of what is good and the other who's the representation of what is suspect at best, they both go to the temple to pray. And if you look at the Old Testament, this happened in the morning for a sacrifice and in the evening at a sacrifice. There were times people went to the temple and here's why we need to pay close attention to this. Whether you identify as a Christian or whether you are here wondering where Christianity fits in kind of the world of spiritualism or worldview, both of these men sought God, spoke to God, and understood their reality in relationship to God. But the end, one's godlessness was exposed. How subtle the distinctions are of self-righteousness, even in the hearts of those who sit where you sit right now, in the heart of me. So what's the difference here? Two men went to God. Isn't that the end of the story? <laughs> well, we begin to see as we analyze the contrasts and comparisons of Jesus' parable here. First, he introduces us to a Pharisee where we see a prayer of blind self-sufficiency. Blind self-sufficiency. Hear Jesus' words in verse 11 where he says this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And I know how to drive around a roundabout. <laughs> I think they just left that out, but that's pretty true to righteous people. Now, Jesus' scene he's painting here is really important. When we read parables, we want to read the, reality, the world behind it. That's how Jesus is teaching this. And this reveals something of these two men going up to pray that all of us need to hear but most of us don't want to hear. And what this is revealing is that there is no more accurate indicator of the health of your relationship to God and your thoughts on God than how you engage with God and how often you do in things like prayer and Bible reading. You can't avoid it. The distinctions come out. Now, people will immediately be like, well, this is legalistic. You can't talk about this. I'm not saying these things save you. You are not made Christian because you prayed once. You are not made Christian because you read your Bible. But remember, we're the same people who when things are not working well at work or not working well at home, we're saying, well, we got to communicate more. But what more are prayer and Bible reading than communication? And Jesus is saying here, he's showing in parable form that what we are communicating and how we are communicating is actually a litmus test and an indicator of what you actually believe And it's not meant to crush you. It's actually meant to correct you. He's revealing through prayer, two prayers to the same God, how one of them did not understand the realities that were actually true. And what we'll see in each of these prayers is that each prayer reveals the person's belief about God, their belief about themselves, and their belief about others. First, notice how the Pharisee talked about God. Did you notice that? Jesus introduces this in verse 11 using the typical verb to pray, but I think he's intentionally leveraging the irony here because this is just as much a prayer as your venti mocha frappuccino with whipped cream and sprinkles is a coffee. Like, sure, there's coffee in there somewhere, but it's not coffee. This person says God. It's right there in the text. They're talking to God, but he's hardly praying In fact, what he's doing, if you look at it, is he's really just acknowledging God as he talks about himself. In fact, in this whole prayer, if you were to look at it, he never once asks God or credits God for anything. He thanks God. That's good. We should be a thankful people. But notice what he's thanking God for in verse 11. He's thanking him for three things that he himself, that is the Pharisee, has done. He is thanking God how he is not like others, how often he fasts and how much he gives. Though he is coming to God, where does he hope to find his righteousness? In himself, in what he has done. There's not one grammatical verb in this passage or in this verse in which God is asked or acknowledged for doing any sort of God thing at all. He's a bystander who needed some sort of emotional affirmation like, we did good, God. We did awesome. And here's the reality behind this. It's hard to pray sincerely when we trust in our own performance, productivity, or perfection. That is to say, it's hard to pray sincerely when we are self-righteous. Why is that? Because the self-righteous have very little to pray about. God has done very little. We've done everything. I wonder how many of our prayer lives are crippled because we can't, for the life of us, think of ways in which God is worthy of worship or adoration. And all God's doing is just acknowledging what I've already done to get to this point. I wonder how many of us wrestle to pray with a feeling of guilt, kind of like God is this old sweet grandpa in the nursing home, and before we go have fun on spring break, we need to go check on Pops, make sure he's all right, We talked to him, we did good. All right, now we can go. We did our due due diligence. He was getting lonely there. Now we feel better about our life. Or how many of us pray frequently in terms we would never use in talking to one another, talking to a spouse or kid or friend because in our language of legality, we're actually expressing what our hope is before God. And that is that it's in some formalism and not a relationship that our verbose words reveal a lack of simple intimacy. Remember, Jesus already taught us how to pray earlier in this book, in the Lord's Prayer, which, as we talked about at that point, was really the disciples' prayer. And how does he begin? What's the first thing he tells us to be mindful of when we pray? Well, in Luke 11, verse 2, he says this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come Jesus says, begin prayer with the name of the Father. This man, the Pharisee, begins his prayer in the name of himself. But prayer doesn't fly with big people. Prayer doesn't flourish with your own kingdom desires. Prayer begins, ends, and is sustained by a Father who is hallowed and set apart over all things. If this man has righteousness in himself, then he doesn't need God for anything, and prayer to God will look ultimately like praise for oneself. And now we see that the words of his prayer also reveal something about how he treats others. How does he treat others? Well, the only thing he's grateful to God about, we see in verse 11, is what? He's grateful that he is not like the others. He's not like the extortioner, the unjust, the adulterers, or even the silly tax collector, or the person who doesn't know how to go around roundabouts. And if righteousness is contingent upon our own self-sufficiency, that is to say, if you don't understand the gospel of scandalous grace, then you will always see other people as either threats or tools to your own end. Now, what do I mean by that? That you always see people as threats or tools without a doctrine of grace? Well, uh, take for instance the way in which Cain and Abel reveal the threat of others in our own acts of self-righteousness. In Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall, uh, there's hope for parents, right? The first parents, after sin, uh, had two kids murder each other. Uh, If you haven't done that yet, you're crushing it as a parent. So there's good, there's hope. Keep reading to the end, we'll make it. Um, But what happened is Cain went and offered uh, from the fruit of the field. Abel went and offered from the fruit of the flock, his choice portions, and God, uh, the Bible tells us, had regard for Abel, but not for Cain. God delighted in Abel. There's nothing said about what he t- just didn't take regard for Cain's offering. And so what did Cain do? He killed Abel. Why? Well, Scripture helps us interpret Scripture. First John 3.12, uh, the Apostle John says this. He says, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, Cain failed to realize that the problem of his rightness, of him having regard before God, he failed to realize that problem of rightness was between his sinful heart and God. And instead, what did he see the problem of rightness as being? Between him and his brother. If he wanted peace, he had to eliminate the threat. If he wanted his offering to have regard... Get rid of competition. So he killed Abel. Kids who are in here, what happens when maybe you and your siblings are called to go do chores, and you all finish, and you come back, and one of your parents says, man, it's your other sibling. You cleaned that room really well. Do you typically just stand and clap and say, yes, parents, they have done the most perfect job? No, we make excuses, right? Well, they they had more time. They actually just threw things in the closet and closed the door. We begin to tell them of all the, the things that our siblings did not do right. Now, why do we do that? Why do we point out their faults? Because we want them to understand that we are just as good, that they aren't that great. We see them as a threat to, if they're getting affirmed for that, then I have no hope for affirmation. So I have to slander them in order to get it. And parents, we do this all the time, don't we? As adults. What happens when someone else gets the promotion over you? What happens when someone else gets the first date over you? What happens when someone gets the house you always wanted? They pretty quickly become threats, don't they? And out of that reality, choices, decisions, and actions are made. And this is why Jesus says that those who trusted in themselves treat others with contempt. That's not only seeing people as threats, but sometimes it's seeing people as tools. Sometimes we move towards people who are in suffering. We move towards people who have lousy sacrifices. Uh, We care for them, not because we love them, but because we want to be judged in comparison to them, right? This is what the Pharisees did. They wanted to be around. This is the Pharisee in this text. He was around all these other people, but he was distinct from the others. He stood apart from them so that his righteousness would be obvious. These other people who the Pharisee met with in the temple were meant to leverage. Look at the peasant commoners. Look at the poor widow. Look at the poor tax collector that I'm around, so that you could see how special and distinct I am. I. Uh, this might be a shock to you. I'm not very fast um, for a man, but I am faster than my wife. So. Uh, which I feel great, you know, disciples in the Bible brag about who's faster, so I'm not being arrogant, I'm just being biblical, saying I'm faster than my wife. So, so what happens when I feel particularly down with myself is I'll challenge, we, I, I do this, okay, I challenge my wife to a race. And so far, I am undefeated. Now, why do I do that? So that I can tell myself I'm fast, when in all reality, I am like mere years away from my son beating me in a foot race. It's that old adage, like, you know how to outrun a bear, Just hike with slow people. That's what we do often. (laughs) No, no, my wife is not the slow person. I will die in a bear's mouth to love my wife. (laughs) Guys, pick up on a transition, okay? Goodness gracious. But what if you took a moment to assess your relationships? What if you took a moment to assess why you do engage in discipleship? Or why you don't? And what's at the heart of those? How many of you hold back from discipleship or confessing sin or being known because you worry that someone will see that you actually lack some sort of external righteousness in comparison to others? How many are quick to go to those who are in need because you get to be seen as the superhero condescending to the wretched mess? But you're anxious for anyone who might be more advanced in their walk with Jesus to come and help you because you don't want to be challenged by the fact that you might be faster than your wife, but you're slower than everyone else. How many of us feel like we're involved in care, but at the end, it's not a care for someone else. It's a care for your own self-esteem. You see, this Pharisee stood by himself, but he wasn't near anyone. And if the righteousness of God is found primarily in you, then you will always by nature keep the others at a distance so that you can be righteous. But the posture of this Pharisee was not only in contrast to others, but we see how he stood and understood himself in, con- in tension with God. You see how he views himself in this text. You see, the gospel is simply good news. That's what the word gospel means in Greek. It's, it's good news. It's the good news we often say at the church, that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. But this man, his righteousness, his good news is himself he has done it. He is not like the sinner. He is generous. He is faithful. His prayer at the end is nothing more than him approaching the mirror and saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Recognize me, God. Or as Augustine described his prayer, he says, God made me man. I made myself just. He's just hoping for God to recognize and rubber stamp himself so that he can prove he has earned the righteousness of grace. He's still going to God. He still thinks he needs grace, but he's showing, no, I've proved that I can earn it. You see, this man did good things. Do not hear the points that I'm not making, the points Jesus is not making. He's not saying, don't be generous, don't fast. He's not encouraging you to therefore go be an adulterer or unjust or an extortioner. Those things are objective in their own sense. But what this man is doing is he is placing his trust in the external fruits of his own work, none of which are perfectly righteous in themselves. See, the Greek tense Jesus uses in verse 9, or Luke uses in verse 9, when he says these men trusted in themselves for righteousness is in a tense that communicates perfect and complete trust. These people were blindly and perfectly confident. It's not that they denied grace, and that's the danger, right? They came to God. They said a prayer. They did good things. But what his prayer revealed is what many of us in here who are Christian still wrestle to distance ourselves from. His prayer revealed that he needed grace, but it also revealed that he was good enough to deserve it. That I did all these things. Therefore, I am righteous. Because of what I've done, Father, be gracious to me. But Jesus already speaks of this heart in Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, where he says, you Pharisees, you clean the outsides of the cup and of the dish, but on the inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. It's not the outsides only that count, but the insides of our heart. What, when the insidious remnant of self-righteousness remains, perfect, enduring righteousness will not be found. Because it's not in us. We corrupt it. John Calvin said it this way. He says, thus we are drawn into a foolish and inflated view of our flesh. And then trusting in our own flesh, we brazenly exalt ourselves before God himself, acting as if our own abilities are sufficient without grace. When you assess your own prayer life and the things you say, How often do we assume our abilities are sufficient apart from grace? And that instead it's our ability to do A, B, or C, that therefore God must give us this, whatever this is. But when our own righteousness is trusted, Jesus's never will be. In the church, it's easy to be a Pharisee in more cleaned up ways, acknowledging God, talking to God, praying to God. But if our perfect trust is that God would accept us for what we've done for our own righteousness, we miss righteousness. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is not for those who deserve it. The gospel is for those who need it. And you need it. We need God's righteousness, but it has to come. It must come. And for all who get it, it will come apart from your own works. And instead, it must come from a keen awareness and a total disregard of not our own worth, we're made in the image of God, but of our own merit, thinking that we deserve what God freely gives. And this is where we see the brief prayer of the tax collector with our second point, clear sinfulness. Clear sinfulness. And looking at these contrasts, uh, the brevity of the tax collector's prayer uh, shows us the simplicity of the contrasts that are made. Jesus continues in verse 13. He says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One Pharisee prayed visibly, robed in his own self-righteousness. Another, socially scandalized and corrupt tax collector, prayed about his obvious unrighteousness. And in this, Jesus is turning the tables of our own hearts. And the posture, just look at the physical posture in comparison of these two men, couldn't be further. The Pharisee stood near, but on his own. The tax collector stood far off. In the midst of the congregation, he began his petition not standing on his own merit, nor in proximity to the altar of sacrifice, but his whisper began on the fringe of the people hoping for what he could hardly believe possible because of what he already knew about himself. And Jesus' Jesus's verbs here draw a distinction too. In verse 11, the Pharisee, he uses the verb prayed. He did all the things we would have thought about with prayer, but do you see what's lacking in this, Or in verse 13? It says, the tax collector said... <laughs> This doesn't even look like a prayer that people would recognize. This looks like, I don't know, some weak, meager, accidental confession. But notice what that meek, meager confession reveals about his view of God. It's seen in his very opening words. The Pharisee has no direct verb, aside from thankfulness, attached to God. But the very first word of the tax collector is, God, you, be merciful to me. Instead of placing himself and his own work at the center of his pursuit of rightness, he placed God on the mercy seat and realized that he gets nothing unless God does it. If righteousness were to be his, it is no act of man, but an act of mercy, mercy from God himself. If the gospel was for those in need, he saw himself as one in need. He realized neither his wealth nor his worldly possession was worth anything in regards to righteousness. But there was a God who stood in the gap. And were he to be made right, God would have to act. And secondly, we see his view of others. So if you have your Bible, this is a good Bible study. Open up to verse 13. I'd like you to notice all the things he says about others. Go ahead, look at it. Think on it. What does it say? Nothing. There is nothing in it about others. When it comes to our own prayers for righteousness, other people do not matter. This person avoided the mistake of Cain, who who encountered the problem of rightness and made it about Abel. This person realized that his problem is with God and his own heart and no one else. It is so common when you assess the anatomy of your own prayer life to constantly be praying for the sins of others as if other people would stop sinning against you. Righteousness would flourish. But this man shows us that the problem, I'm not going to quote Taylor Swift again because I butchered it last time, but the problem is him. It's in his own heart. You see, the best step to being in awe of mercy is to stop praying for the theys and thems in your life and start praying for the me's and my's. To realize that you are the person who needs God more than anything else. And therefore, when we go to others, we bring nothing than the God who himself is merciful to us. He prays to the Lord for himself because of what he knows about himself. And here's where we see lastly, the view of the man's, uh, or the, 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 the tax collector's view of himself. It says he stands far off. As he he sees himself as Paul rebukes, uh, Elimus in Acts ten. He says he is an enemy of righteousness. He's at odds with the very thing he hopes to have. He saw himself with one qualification and as one thing. What is it? A sinner. This man was right with Rome. He was probably right with his bank account. We'll see more about that as we get into the story of Zacchaeus. He was probably right with his friends who had a similar sphere of influence in the culture, but he was not right with God, and that was too much to bear. He beat his chest, he lowered his gaze, because he understood that apart from God's merciful giving of righteousness, nothing is ever right. But here's the wonderful declaration Jesus makes in the end. The only qualification the sinner brought was his sin. But when sinners bring our sin to the altar of God, we find that is the only qualification that God will accept. Nothing else matters. And this is our final point where we see merciful salvation. Notice what Jesus says in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house, justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Now there's two beautiful inversions we see here. You'll notice how the Pharisee talked about people in verse 11. He called them what? He called them the others. But what did Jesus just say here in verse 14? This man, the tax collector, not the other, went to his house justified. The Pharisee became the other. Isn't Bible study fun? He became the very person he thought he wasn't. Why? Because he missed the center of righteousness. And what happened on account of that? It says this man, this man being the sinful tax collector, he had been justified. Now, in English, it's harder for us to see the connection here, uh, and there are differences in how those words are used, but in Greek, the roots are the same. The adjective righteousness in verse 9 says that some trusted in their own dikaios, but here, the man who was justified was dikaios. He was made righteous. He was declared righteous. To be justified, church, by the merit of Jesus is to be declared righteous, but it gets even better. Just as the verb tense in verse nine was perfect active, meaning these people perfectly trusted in what they actively did to get their righteousness. When Jesus says it here, it's perfect passive. Passivity is bad in most cases of life. It's great in terms of redemption. Here, in contrast to those who hoped in what they did, which is entirely subjective. Here, this man is declared just, perfectly, apart from any of his own actions. Passively, by merit of another. By the actions and declaration of someone else, that perfect and complete trust, that hope of rightness, of peace, of belonging, and of love was not in anything he did or could do, but only in that which would come from another. Someone, in verse 14, in a perfectly trustworthy and unalterable way had given him the rightness he was desperately seeking. Do you know who that man is? There is no more central point to your understanding of the gospel than your answer to that question. Do you know who that man is? You see, in the Old Testament, we read about these offerings that were made. They happened in the morning. They happened in the evening, daily. They were called burnt offerings. And Leviticus tells us the significance of these burnt offerings. In Leviticus 1, verse 4, It says that the person bringing the offering is to lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him, to make atonement for him. And once the animal was burnt on the altar, verse 9 tells us that that would rise to God as a pleasing aroma to God. In other words, the God who had already revealed himself as loving towards his people, but who is now hostile towards their sin was able to love that which he once hated, how? By the means of atonement, by a sacrifice that rose into his mind and didn't just legally change something, though it's true, but it resulted in the affection, the pleasure of God. God's anger was turned away by the atonement of a sacrifice. And so that's the context of what's happening when these men are going up there. These offerings are being made. There's blood running everywhere. There's smells and there's prayers and there's crowds. And this man, standing far off from the righteousness of God, far from the righteous glory of everything he hoped for, knew his sin. He saw that blood. He smelled that burnt flesh and he beat his chest. And his prayer was, let it be for me. Let it be for me. Let that blood please God. Let that blood cover my unrighteousness. Let that blood be the affirmation not of God's displeasure, but of God's eternal pleasure for those for whom he accepts a sacrifice. You see, this is really beautiful. Those college students who are here, you might attend a philosophy of religion class and they'll say that the doctrine of atonement or penal substitution is something that, that the church invented later on but that Jesus never affirmed any such substitute or wrath against sinners. But here it is from the mouth of Jesus himself. Four times the phrase have mercy on me appears in the book of Luke. In all four of those, it's the typical verb that would be translated, have mercy on me. But here... Jesus uses a different verb. It's a verb that's only used this way in one other spot in the New Testament. The first is here in Luke 18. The second is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. When extolling the beauty of Jesus, the Son of God, greater than Moses, sacrifice of all sacrifices, says this He says, therefore, He, that is Jesus, had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, or what the NIV translates, atonement for the sins of his people. That make propitiation, make atonement, is the exact same verb translated here in Luke 18, verse 13, as Be merciful. The cry of this man was not merely for mercy, but he understood the means of mercy. He understood that if there were to be the favor of God, If there were to be a disposition of love and a free gift of mercy, it had to be by means of atonement, of propitiation, and of sacrifice. And the very Jesus who in this passage declared the metaphorical sinner just is the same Jesus who will always answer the real prayers of real sinners with real mercy. Why? Because he did it. Because he is the center of our prayers because he is the perfect hope for those who trust in righteousness. It is righteousness, not our own. John Chrysostom, an early church father, said this. He said, if we pray with humility, smiting our breasts as the tax collector, if we utter what we did, if we say, be merciful to me, a sinner, we shall obtain all. That is to say, we shall obtain righteousness. The gospel is for those who need it. And we need it. We need to be made right. And there's only one way to get it. Only one person who could give it. And it's not you. It's not me. It's not your spouse or your paycheck or your degree. It's the mercy making man, Jesus Christ. Would you come? Him, would you lay down all of the verbs centered on yourself and would you throw yourself in simple but certain confession upon this Savior? Be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nothing more central to your life and your culture than this answer. In Micah chapter 6, an anxious people are trying to understand how they might have righteousness before God, and they list all these things. We could offer tons of burnt offering sacrifices. We could pour out gallons of oil offering. And then he says at the end, he says, we could even offer our firstborn son for our sins. If we offer our firstborn son, would we be declared righteous? But look at how the prophet answers him in Micah 6, 8. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Come humbly to Jesus who is merciful to sinners. Have you done this? Have you laid aside your trust in self? And if you wrestle with that, come talk to me, come talk to somebody else, because here is all. Here is the hope of what you want. Here is something perfectly trustworthy. Here is something transformational where the least prayer of this in the kingdom of God is the most loved by the God of the kingdom. It does not matter what you have done. It matters what Christ has done. It matters to whom you turn for mercy and where you think you get it. And I'll close with a beautiful reminder of this from John Calvin, where he says this. He says, the cross destroys the false notion of our own strength that we've dared to entertain. And it destroys that hypocrisy in which we have taken refuge and pleasure. It strips us of carnal self-confidence and thus humbling us, instructs us to cast ourselves on God alone so that we won't be crushed or defeated. Such victory is followed by hope. Since the Lord by providing what he has promised, establishes his truthfulness for what lies ahead. Trust not in yourself, but on Christ who has fulfilled the promise for us. The gospel is for those who need it and we need it. Let's pray.